Welcome, you're listening to the Granary Young Adults podcast, Unapologetic, a fortnightly podcast where we don't avoid hard conversations, we aim for them. In each episode, we talk about the contentious, taboo and uncomfortable, the topics that no one is speaking about, but everyone is talking about. If you don't want to be challenged, this is not the podcast for you. These aren't sermons or lectures, they're conversations to challenge and activate dialogue as we dig into what God wants to teach us. I'm Rachel Baker, the Young Adults Pastor at the Granary Church. Thanks for listening in, and we hope today's episode challenges and blesses you today. Hello and welcome to everybody listening. Today we have a special guest, Luke Collings, and Luke and I have actually never officially met. We were introduced um, online through Matt Madigan, who's on staff staff here at the Granary. Um, So first of all, thank you, Luke, for agreeing to um, chat with us today. My pleasure, Rachel. Great to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are, Luke, what your background is, and and maybe how you even know Matt Madigan for some context for those listening? Okay. Well, uh, I am married to Julia, and we have three wonderful children. We live in the town of Morinbar, which is in central Queensland, and I'm the senior pastor of the Anglican Church there. Uh, before uh, coming up to Morinbar, I was a minister in uh, in Sydney, and uh, I met Matt when we had a connection through Anglicare Sydney. In the midst of all that, I've uh, been doing theological study. I have done a Master's of Theology uh, through More Theological College, and my area of interest is in, uh, in Christian doctrine, uh, the doctrine of God more specifically, but I love all questions regarding uh, Christian uh, systematics and theology and history and all that sort of thing. Mm, Amazing, which is um, obviously why Matt thought of you. So this is the first part of our Authority of the Bible three-part series that we're doing. And we knew that we wanted somebody with some expertise on theology and history of the Bible, because this is a bit of a meaty topic and not one I'll admit that I know much on in terms of study. So thanks, Luke, for lending your wisdom to us in this one. The canonization of scripture I think even in saying canonization of scripture, for those that might not be familiar with the terminology, are picturing a pirate scene from a movie. What what in the world is the canonization of scripture? What does that mean? In the broadest sense, when we talk about the the canonization of scripture, we're, we're talking about how the books that come to make up our modern Bible came to be uh, recognised as the authoritative word of God. And that is not uh, something which happened all in one moment exactly. Uh, If you have a picture in your head of a bunch of scholars sitting down to say, okay, this is definitely in, this is definitely out, it was all done in one meeting or in one formal process, that's not really an exact picture of how it all came to be. Really what we're talking about in the canon of Scripture is a recognition by God's people that in the works of prophets and apostles in the history of God with his people, their particular words uh, were, in fact, the words of God coming to God's people as a whole and actually saying, hang on, uh, in what this prophet is saying, it's actually God speaking to us. It's not just the prophet's words. It's it's God's words that are here, and we have to hold on to that and recognise that and pass that on as the real tradition of the faith. 
All right, great. So that that helps us understand what we're aiming for today as we as we talk. That's really good. So talking about that, where I guess our first question is where where did the Bible even come from? So if there's 66 books in the Bible. Who's decided what's in and out? Where where when was that decided? Who decided it? Where did it even come from? I I want to actually challenge that phrasing of the question. That is really not the approach that we should have or should understand historically as how um, God's people have treated the Bible. It's not so much that um, a people have brought a set of assumptions or preferences to a whole bunch of different texts and say, okay, these ones fit my criteria, but rather instead it is recognising that uh, God has done something special with these texts that have come from God's people. So the question is not what are we doing with the texts or what are the texts doing with us, but rather what has God done with these texts to speak to his people in all places uh, under his one authority to reveal himself. So that's what it's a recognition of what God is doing rather than a process that we as people put onto the, the texts. So that's the broad, broad question. And the way that that has happened over time has looked differently. The, the Bible, as you said, is 66 different books. Uh, there's 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. They were written over a course of one and a half thousand years, three different languages, different places, different cultural contexts and assumptions, and just different parts of God's story. There is different um, literary styles which were in there. You have straight history, you have parable, you have poetry, you have drama. So much is in there, but yet at the same time, God's people uh, in different ways have recognised that these, uh, th these texts are united by a bigger purpose of God who is revealing himself there. And the Old Testament, there were, it, it was in uh, what we call the Old Testament now is really what the, uh, the, the Jewish people had in their authoritative Hebrew scriptures, the, 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 the collections of the, the law, as the books dealing with Moses, the, the prophets and the writings. Those are the, the three big categories. So what was in the uh, what was in the recognized collection of the Hebrew scriptures up until the time of Jesus, that's what the, uh, the Christian church has treated as the Old Testament. With the New Testament, we have uh, collections of works which have a close association, either written by or, or dictated by or the heavy involvement of one of the apostles of Jesus. It's the apostolic word. So uh, that comes to us and say, okay, these were the direct witnesses of Jesus and his ministry. So it is, and that was what was taken and recognized by the church at the time as being authoritative. So that's what we will treat as our New Testament, uh, a new part of the word of God come to us. Okay. Does that mean that um, the Old Testament would have been recognized um, even by Jesus? Was that sort of 
the collected works at that time? Yes. So the Old Testament uh, was very much in place in uh, a really firm form by the time Jesus comes along. In, in fact, if you look at something like the uh, the Gospel of Luke, the, where Jesus begins his ministry, is going into the synagogue and fulfilling his place as one of the men of the Jewish people to stand up and read and speak on uh, on the book of Isaiah, for example, that was taken as the word of God for God's people there. And so that was very much recognised. And that's what the evidence from archaeological finds like the, the Dead Sea Scrolls has only confirmed that that uh, those works were very much in place and there wasn't a lot of variance between them. We understand that what we have in uh, the Old Testament uh, now in our English Bibles is a translation of the text that Jesus would have read out in Hebrew there in the first century. Mm, that's interesting. That's something I never actually thought of before, that um, you could argue that Jesus having, um, you know, all of that knowledge, if there was something there that shouldn't have been, he he would have had the opportunity to have called out that based on the access that he would have had. That's really interesting. That's actually encouraging. Yes, yeah, very encouraging, absolutely. So did all the scripture then, um, we talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls and some of the other written works, was the majority of what um, is recognised as the scripture from the Bible, is that written work or was there like a verbal dictation process that was um, passed down through generations? Like is there an opportunity there for misrepresentation? Could something be mistranslated if that's the case? So, yes, there was uh, times of, uh, of oral transmission of different uh, parts of the, the word. Um, even in the New Testament, we see that the Gospel of Luke is quite clearly uh, pulling on different forms and different sources to make up uh, that work. Uh, we shouldn't treat that, though, as a sign that the words of the Bible are unreliable in and of themselves. We do not view the Bible the same way as, say, a Muslim would understand the Quran, that uh, the prophet went into a cave and they got a direct and he got a direct oral dictation from an angel saying, write this down. This is the words coming from God. I'm dictating this. You have to get every word exactly right. Or we don't look at the way that the, um, uh, the Latter-day Saints treat the Book of Mormon, that they dug up uh, you know, plates that had been left in the ground by God um, thousands of years before, and you got this sort of mystical uh, translation of this uh, pre-existent word that sort of came down from heaven. Instead, what we say is that God authorised or, or approved of the witness of uh, and words of his chosen people, his chosen witnesses to the things that he has done, and that includes the process of oral transmission of the, of the, uh, the history of the ancient Jewish people. It involves the way that the books of the Old Testament in particular were organised and put together in their final form by the Jewish people in their, in, at different times so they could have a full understanding of their history and how it came, 
how it came together, even the way the, the book of the Psalms was was organized, that no one stopped, you know, just started at uh, Psalm 1 and went through to Psalm 150, just writing out in order. Those were collected from different places and organized to not only put them to, together neatly, but also to tell a story. So through that whole process, God was active and God was approving so that his people would receive the word, the revelation of himself that he really wanted them to have. So we have to see this as God's process rather than a human process which is going on. But ones that God was in control of every step of the way so that we get them in the, in the way that we have them now, the way that the church received them. It's not, it's not just a vibe. Uh, in there that we just get that we get the ideas, but that God was in charge of every single stage so that so the, the final received word of God's people were the words that God wanted them to have. Yeah, great. So then the question might come with all the translations that are available, and there's so many, um, and even that we use within church. So um, different pastors prefer different translations and versions of the Bible. Which one's the right one then? That's a, a difficult question because you have to think the right one for, for what purpose. The right uh, translation of the Bible for me is very different from someone who speaks only French. So we understand that scripture, because it is uh, God-ordained and has been put in, the, in that way, uh, is able to transcend culture and time and so forth. So uh, the scriptures can be uh, translated at different times and different places uh, and even for different purposes. So uh, you can give a, a version of the scriptures like the contemporary English version or even the old Good News translation uh, to someone who's got English as a second language so that they can, they can hear that and they can understand uh, what is happening in the scriptures. And so they will understand Jesus. They will understand the story of God's people there uh, and that's comprehensible for them. Uh, it's a different story if you're uh, wanting someone who is uh, wanting a translation that will help you examine the intricacies of the, the technical language or the poetry uh, in uh, in the, the Old Testament, for example, different translations, uh, in my view, more or less successful at translating the poetry of the prophets, which can be so important for understanding the point they were trying to get across. So uh, so we can make adjustments for that. But it, it's one of the things that we say that if someone is, uh, if a translation is making a, an effort to uh, translate the words of God faithfully, um, we can debate how well they do that. And there, of course, there have been translations to that made mistakes and think, okay, well, that translation really didn't capture something there and we can we can be critical of a translation. But being critical of translation is not this being say was cre being critical of God's word. The fault is never in God's word. The fault may be in how we pass that on, how we may interpret it, how we may read it, but the fault never lies with God's word itself. So often a different translation can bring a sense which is there 
in the text that uh, not every translation can capture because translation is not just taking one one word and having an automatic meaning to an, in, into another language. Languages don't work that way. There is always a process of accommodation. We've got to accommodate one way or another with, with a whole range of things. And especially when we're dealing with ancient languages, which are far removed in style and even in worldview from the languages that we have today in English. Ancient Hebrew is very, very different from modern English. Uh, and uh, that's why I, I personally, I struggled the first couple of years of theological college trying to get my head around Hebrew until I could make my brain understand that this ancient language is not like a, mo a modern language. And so, and then you start to have a real appreciation for the work that Bible translators do and the, the difficulty that they have there, but also the faithfulness of those people throughout the uh, uh, throughout the centuries who have worked on these skills, who've worked on how we understand these ancient texts so that we can bring the word of God uh, to life for so many people in so many different places. I find it really interesting because sometimes um, you hear people struggle with um, where some terminology could be, you know, interpreted one way or the other or a word used one way or the other and people can get caught up um, with a single sort of translation of a single word. But I like that you were saying that it's it's the whole message that's translated through it. Are there are there translations that have come out in the past that have um, generally been sort of like, ooh, actually that's not, <laughs> a, a bunch of us don't agree with that? Like who, who are the people that I guess we want in charge of um, translating the Bible into different versions? Okay, so there are some, obviously, some translations that you encourage Christians as a whole to maybe stay away from, which are the translations, inverted commas, uh, associated with particular denomination or sect. So the New World Translation, um, which was a, a one from the Jehovah's Witnesses, which uh, quite famously, uh, in my view, mistranslates certain verses of the scriptures on purpose because of their view of who Jesus is and uh, they want to support that. So um, there are a, a few other translations uh, from uh, particular Christian sects that will not, will say this, this is for them. That's, that's how they'll be, but they won't let anyone else use their, uh, or they won't let their uh, adherents use any other translation except their authorized one. If, if anyone says that, you know, this is our only authorized translation of the Bible, you know, that's a little red flag to go up right away. If we're talking about contemporary translations, uh, there are, a number which I think have, have done better than others. And I think that's where we might talk about uh, more the success of the main or, or lack thereof of the mainstream versions rather than, um, uh, you know, to the extent which they say, okay, that's just bad. And so like how well did they actually meet the standard they were trying to set? So very, very famously going back, you know, uh, 15 years or something like that, you know, a bit more, there was a lot of, um, you know, hype around the English Standard Version when that came out, how this was going to be the most wonderful translation. It was going to, it was meant to unite the uh, evangelical denominations, particularly the more theologically conservative ones. It was going to be a beautiful translation. Everyone was coming out, they kind of said how wonderful it was. And uh, for all of its good points at times, um, uh, 
the translation ended up being clunky, uh, particularly in the Old Testament. Uh, you would start reading a sentence and you'd get halfway through and think, hang on, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah, and so there's a, a lot of clunkiness there. So, And it was because that translation was trying to render word for word um, so closely to an extent that um, it, it just wasn't as readable. And if you try, um, imagine giving a translation like that to um, a new Christian or someone who had English as a second language and say, this is the version that you must use and think, okay, well, that's not going to work very well. You know, because, because, you know, myself or pastors who have studied ancient languages sort of can sort of see behind the translation and say, okay, I'm, I kind of understand what they were getting at there because I, I know what Hebrew was was there. I can read it. I can, you can sort of muddle the way through it. But that that was a, a version that ended up um, flopping quite a bit, you know, or didn't rather didn't live up to the expectations. It was, you know, just a... Um, another version of the, you know, the revised standard version, ultimately. Um, but other translations that have been using, that have been quite popular, I, I think the, um, I think the revisions to the, um, um, the NIV, uh, the, uh, the, the new translation has been generally very good. Um, the Christian standard version, um, which is the, come from Hol the Holman publishers, I think it has been great. I love what, uh, in contrast to the SV, I think that is a really good version of dealing with Old Testament poetry and the and the richness of language. I think that that brings it out quite well. Um, even you know, some of the, the other you know, more um, you know, sense-for-sense translations like the contemporary English version do a great job for people from non-English-speaking backgrounds or for younger people and so forth. So... There's, there hasn't been a lot of controversy over uh, versions that you think are um, uh, yeah, have, fa have failed too much at their job, though people from certain um, theological standpoints will have their preferences because they like the way that uh, um, certain things are rendered, um, uh, particularly with issues regarding you know, gen we talk about gender language in the New Testament in particular, and that, that's been a big question. And that tends to be the criteria that some people will say, well, the version passes or fails as well. How well it deals with gender? Is it gender inclusive or gender exclusive? You know, there's a change, you know, the original brothers to brothers and sisters. And sometimes sometimes that's a fair translation. Sometimes it, it isn't. So, um, and but versions can also be polarised as well. So you, you do have to take... But, uh, everything you know a little bit critically asking questions is great around translation issues and Luke you mentioned that the um, scholars that are translating are still fallible they're still human themselves I just wanted to sort of you're saying and I understand that that they are human and fallible but we would say that they would never knowingly publish something that they know to be a fallible translation I believe that there are enough checks and balances with the major the translations that are cross-denominational put out by the reputable Bible publishers uh, that you could not get a, uh, a deliberate falsehood through. Um, there, are, there is just there. It's not just uh, one person sitting down and writing out their translation. Okay, that's going to be the translation for the Bible. The Bible. The, the translations that we get from our major publishers, our major versions, 
go through a rigorous process of review um, and uh, to, to make sure that the translation is fair and accurate. And you, you couldn't just come up with a, a really wacky translation of a verse that has no basis in any scholarship without someone throwing up a, a red light somewhere along the lines. Even when the translations uh, process is finished, it goes out to um, other scholars. It gets, it gets tested and gets, gets um, get read, read by others who are outside the translation process for their, their feedback. And the best translations go, as they go across uh, only denominational, but also um, liturgical uh, and, um, uh, and even theological lines to say, okay, is this a, a fair rendering of the text? That's what you'll get from most of them. Now, um, if you go digging out there, you find all sorts of people who put up, you know, their translation of the Bible. Um, and, um, you know, I, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to say that there has never been a case where someone has deliberately, misinterpret, deliberately misinterpreted um, a scriptures for, for a... Um, a translation which is just which is just put out there, rather than one being associated, as I said, with with either the um, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or whatever it is that that, um, that will deliberately work something in there because it's that like that's their particular sect of Christianity, so their their translation has to adhere to that um, to that to some of those guidelines. There, I think there is a um, uh, uh, there is a de deliberate deception being pra practiced on there, but for the for our our, our general cross-denominational modern translations, no, I don't think you could you could get away with that. One of the things I would encourage people to do when you, uh, if you're picking up a new Bible, at the front of the Bible, there's usually a translator's preface. Uh, that is so revealing and contains so much information about how the text was translated. What were the things that were really of concern to the translators? Why did they think that this translation needed to be done or it needed to be revised, whatever it, whatever it is? There is so much helpful information in the in the translator's preface at the front of the Bible. Um, it, it's really worth worth reading. Anyone to pick pick up and just look in your look in your Bibles right now and find the translator's preface. It will tell you a lot about how they translated it, what the process was, why they, why they made certain decisions, what, was, what were their theological commitments as they were going through, uh, and what were things of concern, how did they decide um, uh, if, if there were textual issues, um, you know, how they were going to do that, did they put, did they put things in footnotes, did they, did they just ignore the, ignore the problem, so much, is, so much is there. And that, that transparency... Uh, so which you'll find in in our modern Bibles is very very important and can actually give us a lot of confidence. If you go onto the if it's still there, the Kurong website actually has where they talk about um, all the Bibles that you can purchase through them. Um, there's actually information on translations that has a bit of a summary about like what you're talking about that might be at the front of the Bible there as well. Um, and I have in the past referred to that. And found that really useful to understand, um, yeah, what what the different versions are and, and what they might be providing, um, and and why the purpose for them. So, um, if somebody's interested in learning a bit further about different translations, Kurong's got that resource. Um, I'm pretty sure they still do, um, and I found that really helpful in the past as well. Um, in our generation, where 
Um, there's a lot of opinions that get thrown around and sometimes there can be that, um, even like you were talking about in gender language, it's like, oh, that part has been um, misinterpreted or translated incorrectly. I like what you're saying about using all those different translations. These aren't translations that have come out of um, just um, Sam hanging out in his office and deciding to translate it word for word. This is over the course of long periods of time with lots of scholars working on them. And does it differ that greatly from the other translations and do they work together? So um, sort of calling into question one thing isn't just as easy as oh, I read somewhere that that was misinterpreted and the whole the whole message falls apart. It's going back to, um, yeah, who over time has translated and looked at this much information and come to the same sort of, um, you know, message through through the Bible translations. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of scholarship. There's a lot of debate that goes along behind all of this, and uh, and that's good. But we we need to make sure, um, particularly for young people, that in all this is this is meant to be encouraging of us to have confidence in the authority of God's word. That God's word can speak speak to us. Our, our translations of the scriptures will always be imperfect because they come out of imperfect people, even. Uh, scholars with PhDs and, and so forth and experts, they're, they're fallible people and they'll, they'll have their own biases and so forth. So we, we can talk about that, but at the end of the day, we, we encourage, if we read it overall in how the scriptures come to the church, that is God presenting himself to, to the world, we have confidence in that. We say, you know, we can, we can reliably meet God through the words he's given his church. And we may struggle with that because we're, we're limited and our translations are limited, but God is unlimited. God is eternally good and eternally relational to his people. And we, we take that seriously when we, when we have a high view of the Bible in our, in our gatherings. No, that's great. You touched before on um, the Old and the New Testament. So why, can you just elaborate maybe a little bit on that? Like, why is there an Old and a New Testament? What's the purpose of having those two parts of the scripture? Okay, so we have an Old Testament because uh, there is uh, a, a united uh, word of what was treated as the authoritative scriptures of Israel, of the Jewish people, that was really set together as a, as a united work uh, by the time of Jesus, um, these this, these were um, said scriptures that were written over the course of a, a thousand years, maybe more, um, and that really does with the story of God's people up to the time of Jesus. What would Jesus? What was the context in which Jesus came, and what were the promises of God that Jesus was going to fulfil? And having that Old Testament there in that form means okay, we see Jesus in his. Uh, historical and religious context. So that was already in place. He didn't come out of nowhere into into the world. He came in the in that particular context, in in that story of God. Uh, and so, when we have Jesus, who we mustn't forget is the linchpin of everything. The whole Bible holds together because Jesus was the Word of God come in flesh uh, to into creation. You know, God brought uh, humanity into himself so he could reveal his, his fullness. And that was the ultimate revelation of God. 
And so the words of the witnesses to him, those that Jesus chose and to, to bring in as his witnesses, they are testifying to this great thing that God has done in intervening into, into the world. So the, the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus and that fulfillment is testified to in the New Testament. How should the people of God now understand Jesus in light of the great history of God in the past? So um, different uh, different contexts, uh, different um, uh, different periods of, of history. Though it does, they they're not the last book of the Old Testament. You know, came into its final form only only really a few hundred years before Jesus but it, it wasn't signed but that was that's when it all was all set there but we we now take uh the New Testament as a uh how that fulfillment of God's promises gets worked out in blessing for the whole world the, the Old Testament uh God's story with Israel um with a promised blessing for the world and then New Testament the blessing for Israel and the world is fulfilled Sometimes you hear people talk about the um, apocrypha. Mm-hmm. What what what's that, and does that fit? Where does that fit? Okay, there is really no one set thing called the apocrypha. The apocrypha. When we talk about the apocrypha, we're talking about a whole different collection of writings. Some of which came before Jesus and some of which came after the New Testament was written. And so they're all can be lumped together in this thing called apocryphal literature. And we have to be careful what we're, what we're talking about. Um, in the, uh, for the you know, Old Testament period, the time before Jesus, we are looking at, we sometimes talking about the books of uh, uh, Maccabees or Tobit or some other uh, endings that were placed on the end of the book of Daniel. Book of Daniel is a really fascinating history we can't get into now, but there are all these extra endings or extra bits that could have been added onto there. Um, And a lot of those uh, books had uh, dealt with the history of um, the Jewish people um, within the 400 years before Jesus um, in their uh, their, re- their return to the promised land after exile, uh, how they were oppressed by further further people by the Greeks and, and so forth and how, how God looked after them there. Uh, the important thing to note about those books is um, while God is always present in them, that's not a surprise because in ancient history books, they were v- the idea of the of God or what, whichever gods or whichever civilization being involved in the history of the people was was just accepted. You know, so so yes, there, there wasn't a necessary a, a, a distinct line between um, historical books um, and theology books. You know, they're very much those worlds were very much intertwined. As a spirit, spiritual world um, was very much accepted, rather than is now. But those books there in the um, in what we call the, the pre-Jesus era never made it into the Hebrew collections of authoritative scriptures of the the law, the prophets and the writings. They were never treated as that. They never achieved that status. They were more like uh, stories about God's people and how they dealt with um, oppression and so forth and and reflection on on their situation rather than being, okay, this is the authoritative word of God. It never had that status for the people and there's just no evidence for that um they were read they were understood they helped us to understand the background of the the few centuries before jesus came in and the idea that god hadn't abandoned his people that's you know that's very important but are they 
the revelation of God. No, they never achieved that status. Now, when it comes to some of the apocryphal books of in the, the time after Jesus, um, talking about things like the, the Gospel of Peter, uh, what we may know as the Gospel of Thomas and, and so forth, uh, if, you, if uh, you, you understand anything of the, the history of the church, it's very easy to see when you look at some of those, uh, look at those books, that they are a product of uh, a much later time, that they reflect different movements that arose uh, after the after the apostles of Jesus had all gone to glory, um, and they were n- never treated as authoritative in the uh, the works of the early church, the testimonies of the early church, um, works like um, Clement and Irenaeus and Tertullian and so forth, um, those works are just not part of the, the equation. All the attention is what we is on what we now know as the uh, as the books of the, the New Testament. Now, some of them are books in the New Testament um, ended up being in there when some people thought, oh, maybe there's a question mark here. So book of 2 Peter or Jude or Revelation. There, was, there were question marks about that in the, uh, uh, in the early church. But the, the overwhelming view was that these works um, had enough connection, enough testimony to connect them to the lives of the actual apostles, that they should be treated as uh, part of God's revelation. And there was nothing in, in them that contradicted anything else in the New Testament. So, um, so they, they were they were treated as in. So, um, that, so that's, so uh, if we sum it all up, the, the, what we count, what has been counted in are the works that have always been recognized by God's people as being um, the authority. That's, that's God's, God speaking um, to us. The other, what we call apocryphal works are ones which there is really no evidence that they were ever treated as, authoritative texts for uh, either the Old Testament Israel or for the um, the early church, those who received um, Jesus and taught Jesus' teachings in, in that first few hundred years. Okay, that's really good. And, and I suppose you could almost say it's um, people's reflections, um, testimonies and thoughts on it. It's not that, not that they're wrong, but they're not the authoritative word. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. So we've so we've got um, we've got the Bible as we know it. How do we know that it's finished being written? Uh, well, this has been a question in the past. You know, if we if tomorrow someone uh, down in Egypt, you know, digging through the the, uh, uh, the the garbage dunk of Oxyrhynchus, where so many of the papyruses are been found in modern times if they if they suddenly managed to dig up a, a piece of a papyrus uh, which was a letter coming from say the apostle peter the apostle james to the to the churches in egypt or whatever whatever it was and it said you know would we say that that was the revelation of god it is the revelation of god and different theologians different scholars have had different views on this some people would say you know if we can historically trace it back to the um apostle if we had a really good certainty that it was the apostle james or it was the apostle peter who wrote this then we should revise all our bibles and put and put that in um i i don't necessarily i don't necessarily agree with that i think that uh 
it's not just authorship that is a determining factor. We know from the book of Galatians that the Apostle Peter, for example, uh, was not always infallible. He made mistakes. He fell into the error of of treating some uh, members of the church as different to others and implicitly affirming a different gospel. So Peter in himself was not um, uh, uh, automatically infallible. Um, So just authorship is not the only test. Rather, what we say is that, um, remember, the question is, what is God doing with these texts Um, rather than what are these texts doing with us to what are we doing with the texts? And the real answer is what is God has done something with these particular texts for the church to receive them that sets them apart of any others. And so even if it was that the Apostle Peter did write a letter to a church and that letter got lost, well, that's what God was doing with that text. God said, no, that's, you know, that's not a binding, even though an apostle wrote it, that's not a binding word for the whole church um, from uh, uh, across the across the world for time space. So that that can go. You know, that is not the authoritative text. Other texts God preserved and preserved them amazingly well if we look at the historical and archaeological evidence. The books that we have in the New Testament are well attested as authoritative and circulating around. I don't think we're going to find uh, another um, another letter of the apostles out there hidden in the sands of Egypt or, or in the cave in the Dead Sea or so, so forth. But even if it was, my personal view is that's not scripture. What about um, modern preachers that speak um, boldly about um, scripture? Could they, would they have any right or authority in um, potentially adding to the Bible as we know it? No, but I think we have to defend something in saying that. That is, we have an authority of the preached word. That is, the word, um, and I, I come from a Reformed theological tradition, so Calvinistic and, and so forth. Um, and so there is in that tradition a uh, an understanding that the preached word of God be, becomes the word of God to those who are there and hear and hear it. So if I stand up on a Sunday and I am faithfully preaching the scriptures to my congregation, um, that's just not that's not just Luke giving his ideas and then the church doing whatever they want with them, uh, but instead in how I'm and how I present it in the illustrations that I may use if I'm being faithful to faithful to scripture, then that becomes the word of God to that congreg- congregation. Um, that is that is a function of the um, spirit-inspired teaching office, and that is that is appropriate. But it's diff- it, there's a, a context within um, how that's applied in in our understanding of church and how we understand the gathered the gathered church that makes that applicable. Rather than saying if I stand up and preach and I just and I can stick it up somewhere, and it's a, the thing about the modern world, I can I can stick up and I do. I put my sermons up on a on a um, uh, a post, uh, you know, you know, um, on 
yeah, on SoundCloud so that my church can access them. If they can't get to church on that Sunday, they can they can listen to it. It's a different thing for me saying, okay, well, you're part of this church. We are bound together as the church um, in this place. Um, you recognize me as the as having the teaching office in the church, and so you can recognize that as the um, this teaching as the you know, becomes the word of God to you in that context. That's a different thing than me saying, okay, just because I'm preaching faithfully on this text and putting up on the internet, so that everyone in the world can hear it, that it makes it authoritative word for the whole church everywhere. That's that's taking an, an, an apostolic authority on a local teacher that that is, is not supported um, theologically by scripture. So even if you have the most amazing preacher, and I've heard some amazing preachers um, in, in my life, um, ones that either ones that have pastored me or ones that have, I've, I've heard at conferences and so forth, words of God that I believe have, uh, have spoken, that these uh, preachers have spoken to, to my heart and convicted me of God's will. I absolutely, absolutely believe that. There is a difference in saying, that, that that word in that context is applied to me uh, as being God speaking through them is is not the same as God speaking authoritatively to the whole church across time and space um, that's, uh, that is contained in the scriptures. We put it in a different category. It, it, we, I think it means having a higher view of both scripture and the preached word. We have to have a higher, a higher theological view of both of those um, and, that that enables us to take both both seriously and understand the the message and the conviction of God in both those circumstances. Thank you so much, Luke, for joining us. Um, my my head's hurting in the best way. Um, I love this sort of stuff, um, and it sounds like you've got so much more wisdom and knowledge on the topic. You could probably talk for ages on it. Um, and that's the difference between those of us that have studied it <laughs> for years um, and those that um, haven't. But Thank you so much for sharing um, today the wisdom that you've got on this and the information. It's been eye-opening and really, really helpful in trying to put together some of those questions that I've heard come through. Yeah. It's been great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. And hopefully we can um, have you again as a guest. And if we've got any questions, um, hopefully you wouldn't mind if even we sent some of those through, if there's some specific ones and we could throw them up on social media or, or answer questions. But, um, yeah, we really appreciate it. And I'd love to do that. That'd be awesome. Thank you again so much. Um, and, yeah, I hope that this has been a really um, helpful podcast for those listening. Um, and, yeah, as always, feel free to get in contact if you have questions or comments or um, have you know, struggle or have a different opinion. We, of course, want this to be a conversational podcast and we invite you to participate in that as well. So thank you, Luke, and um, we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us today. We hope this has been eye-opening, challenging, and if you disagree with anything we've said, that you're looking to scripture as you prepare your rebuttal. We would love to hear from you if there's anything you interpret differently, feel we've left anything unaddressed, or if you just want to hear more about what we were talking about today. Please share the episode if you found it interesting and subscribe to get notified when new episodes are published. And for more information about the podcast or Granary Young Adults, connect with us on socials at Granary Young Adults. 